Hello and welcome to Front and Center, a show dedicated to insights and perspectives on commercial real estate investment across the public and private markets. For more information, please visit centersquare.com. Welcome back to another episode of Front and Center. I'm Uma Moriarty, Senior Investment Strategist and Global ESG Lead at Centersquare. And joining me today is Joachim Kerr, Regional and Portfolio Manager in Asia Pacific for our real estate securities team. We're just wrapping up earnings season really around the world for the REIT market. So thank you, Joachim, for joining us to really chat about the, the biggest takeaways that you're seeing based on what you heard from the REITs across Asia Pacific. Hi, Uma. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be back on. So maybe let's start with industrial, right? It's been a really hot sector globally for the last few years with pretty astronomical run growth across a lot of different markets. But we've finally seen supply coming in to meet that demand, at least in the U.S., and we've effectively flatlined that market rent growth. So what are you seeing in terms of industrial fundamentals? Are they holding up across the different markets in Asia Pacific? I think the one theme that we have across Asia, as opposed to Europe and North America, is that Asia is facing a lot less of the extremes and is, and is a lot more uh, stable in, in some sense. And we're seeing that in the industrial space as well. So while we did have positive rental growth of the last few years through COVID, largely for this, because of the same drivers that you saw in Europe and, and North America as well, we never really had the same level of rental growth that you had in, in the US and in Europe. So we didn't really see rental growth in you know, the high double digits. The only market that did record that level of rental growth was Australia. But across the rest of Asia, rental growth was positive, but you know, in the in the high single digits, maybe the low the low double digits. So what we have seen now over the course of 2023 and in this latest earnings season is that rental growth has started to slow, but it's not it's not slowing to the same extent that that we're seeing in Europe and the U.S. because we've also not had that same level of supply response just because the demand shock and the rental growth shock wasn't as great over the last two years. In Australia, we're still seeing around 20 to 30% rental growth, so it's still very elevated. And that's a function of supply being very tight in markets like Sydney and Melbourne, just because land is very difficult to come by. Um, but we do expect that rental growth to, to mediate further going into 2024. And in the other markets, like I said, in Singapore, in Japan, the rental growth is sort of in the mid to high single digits. And then the one market that sort of on its own trajectory is, is really China because of all the economic problems that the Chinese economy is facing. The rental growth there is low to negative, but that's really an outlier. So, Joachim, one of the things that we're watching across, especially the U.S., is the impact that the, the Fed's tightening cycle has not really had on consumers because they're not necessarily as rate sensitive. And that's a very different story compared to what's happening across many of the markets in Asia, where the housing market is much more rate sensitive. And so consumers are feeling it from the perspective of rising mortgage rates. So how is this impacting your you know, expectation for consumer strength and what that really means across both the residential and retail spaces? The weakening consumers is something that we are watching closely in Asia. It depends a little bit, again, on the market that you're talking about. Hong Kong and China, is certainly sort of in the eye of the storm, given the weakness that we're seeing in, in, in China and that's translating into the Hong Kong market. So both the residential as well as the retail markets are under pressure 
across China and Hong Kong. Uh, retail hasn't recovered to its pre-COVID levels, and we're not expecting any near-term recovery either because the economic weakness continues to impact the consumer in this market. And the same on the residential front. The volumes are down quite dramatically. They were down over 50% last year and they continue in, in China and they continue to fall this year. We haven't seen too much pressure on prices yet because consumer balance sheets tend to be in, in very good health across both China and Hong Kong. But we are concerned that if the market doesn't improve, if the economy doesn't improve, that we could start to see pressure on house prices across both of those markets as well. In Singapore and Australia, the picture is a little bit different. We've had very strong retail sales across both of those markets last year and into this year. In fact, in Australia, retail sales have held up much better than what economists and analysts expected. But here too, you know, it's a question of how long that level of retail sales uh, and retail spending is, is sustainable. And our view is that going into 2024, we will start to see a mediation in retail sales and we will start a mediation in the, in the performance of retail REITs. So we've shifted our positioning a little bit away from discretionary towards more non-discretionary retail. On the housing market in both of those, in, in, in both of those countries in Singapore and Australia, again, because the consumer has been very resilient and consumer balance sheets are in good health, we haven't seen any major breaking points or pressure points. Volumes are down in both of those markets, but in fact, you know, pricing uh, is holding up is holding up in Singapore and Australia. And in fact, prices have started to edge up again, in spite of the fact, you know, that both markets have floating mortgages and the impact of mortgages on disposable income has been material because of the increase in rates. But nevertheless, so far, we haven't seen too much weakness in the housing market. And while we expect some weakness, the supply demand dynamics are quite, quite positive in, in terms of in terms of the house in terms of house prices so we're not expecting a major correction in either one of those markets yeah and i think just from a pricing perspective too one of the things that we've noticed this cycle is just the fact that there globally is a lack of housing that's been built especially lack of affordable housing that's been built and so we have kind of the supply demand dynamic that's keeping housing prices afloat despite the fact that we are seeing many other factors that would otherwise have driven prices lower. And one of the last times that we chatted, Yoki, we had talked about the office market across Asia Pacific, just the fact that it's so different than what we're seeing, especially here in the U.S. as it relates to fundamentals and demand, especially. How are, how are the office rates holding up across your region? So I think last time we spoke, I, I mentioned that remote work is not really a trend in Asia. It's certainly not to the same extent that we're seeing in Europe and, and North America. I was in Australia about a month ago and uh, spoke to a few people who had heard my comments or had read them on LinkedIn, for example, and they disagreed with me. They thought that Australia certainly was a market that is being impacted by remote work. And I do, and it's a fair comment. But I do think there, there are three reasons why remote working, even in a market like Australia, is not having the same impact that we're seeing in, in, in Western markets. And the first one is that if you are actually drilling down and looking at the high-grade office space across Australian markets like Sydney and Melbourne, and especially if you're looking at Singapore, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, the really high-quality office space continues to, continues to find Bidders continues to find tenants, and in fact, 
if you're looking at occupancies, they're in the mid to high 90% across pretty much all of those markets. If you're looking at really grade A office space. And in fact, in markets like Tokyo and to some extent Sydney as well, now we are starting to see tenant interest increase for that, for that level of space, for that quality of space. And so rents are while they're not while they're not rising aggressively they are they are quite stable and in Tokyo for example we are seeing we're seeing some rent growth in those in those high grade A pockets across the overall market that's the first point i would make the second point is that what we don't have in asia is a lot of the older office stock that we have in in north america and europe for example so if you look at australia and you kind of take australia as one market and you're looking at you know a population of 25 million and you sort of take greater the greater New York area, which I think has also around 22, 20, 22 million inhabitants. The office stock in that sort of greater New York area is twice the size of the office stock that you have across all of Australia. And the difference isn't so much in the grade A space, the difference is in the, the grade C and grade B space, the kind of space that is becoming obsolete and you don't have that tail in in the Australian markets and you don't have it in other Asian markets either because the office stock is just much younger and hence the the dislocation that we're seeing in in some markets in the United States and in some markets in Europe we're not really seeing in in Asia either and then the third fact the the, the, the third factor that I would list is that while we are still if we're looking at the office occupancy in Australia in particular, because that is the one market where we are seeing remote work take up, where we are seeing people work from home for material amounts of time. We haven't seen those numbers change too much, but if we look at data in the United States, we are starting to see people return to the office or spending some more time in the office, and we are starting to see companies put pressure on their employees to return to the office. And I think that's a function of the economy is starting to show some weakness or some mediation in its growth profile in the US. And my expectation would be that as we see that in Australia as well, that people will be coming back to the office more regularly. Got it. Now, maybe just switching gears from talking about fundamentals to really talking about pricing. One of the things that's been impacting real estate pricing in a really meaningful way over the last year, year and a half is what we've seen across interest rates globally. So in, in, in the face of rising cost of debt across these markets, how is that really impacting either earnings and then also pricing for real estate that's being implied across the public markets? So the question on earnings is easily answered. It's obviously a major headwind, particularly as we move into a lower, a lower growth environment over the next few months and into 2024. The fact that a lot of these companies in Australia, in Singapore, and to some extent in Hong Kong as well are facing higher debt costs is a drag on earnings. And we are forecasting that for a number of the REITs in Singapore, as well as in Australia, the earnings growth is going to, is going to be negative or is going to be materially lower than it otherwise would be because of that increase in debt costs. In terms of the pricing for real estate in Asia, it's the picture is slightly different. And, and this brings me back to my initial point about stability. And the, the one of the key differences between Asia and Western markets is that the real estate market in Asia is proving a lot more stable. And we're seeing that in the valuation of properties because we haven't really seen any major devaluation of real estate values across Asia 
with the exception of Australia to some extent. And the reason for that is Asia is a very banking heavy market where companies are largely dependent on banks for their funding. And the banks in Asia having you know, long-standing relationships with these real estate companies, which are often also part of larger conglomerates, and having gone through the experience of the financial crisis back in 2008 and of the, the fact that banks, because of their experience coming out of 2008, are not that keen on actually taking ownership of real estate. They'd rather just leave it with the real estate companies and kind of kick the can down the road a little bit. We're seeing the same unfold now where banks aren't pushing down on the funding break as much as you would otherwise expect. So companies aren't under as much pressure to face higher rates. And the other reason is also that a lot of real estate companies in Asia learned their lesson from the financial crisis. And if you look at the Australian market or the Hong Kong market, gearing levels are quite low. So they, they're also not distressed in any sense of the word. So we're not seeing any distressed sellers in the market at this point. So I guess in terms of the cap rates that you're seeing for markets out there across the real estate space, what what are the ranges of cap rates that you're seeing some of these core properties trading at in the public markets? And how does that really compare to what you're seeing on the private market side in terms of where appraisals are coming in? So it really depends on the market. But if you're looking at a market like Hong Kong, for example, and, and I am in Hong Kong at the moment, if you're looking at direct market cap rates, you really, you're, you're still looking at cap rates that are sort of in the 3% range for commercial assets, potentially even lower for really prime assets. Whereas the companies themselves are trading at discounts that are well above 50% to, to their net asset value. So, you know, the public market cap rates are materially, materially higher. And if you're looking at markets like Australia, it's a similar story in, in the sense that the gap between the direct and the listed market is, is around 40% if you're looking at office, for example, or 20 to 30% if you're looking at retail assets. And then those markets on the direct side, prime grade A office space is, pro is probably trading around the 4.5% uh, level. So given that your funding cost is now in the 5% range on the direct side, investing in core real estate doesn't make a whole lot of sense in Australia. But on the listed side, because we've had this correction in, in read prices, you're finding quite attractive value. And again, Japan is, from a funding perspective, an outlier because, again, the BOJ hasn't adjusted policy, so that market is slightly different. But there, the benefit is, in spite of the fact that we haven't seen any cap rate expansion on the direct side, the cap rates are still materially higher than funding costs, which is sort of hovering around the 1%. Great. So thank you so much, Joachim, for joining us and sharing some of those insights. Definitely a lot of interesting things unfolding across the real estate markets globally. And we'll be back to discuss more, especially as we go into next year and think about our outlook. Um, so that's that we have time for today, but we will be back next week with another episode of Front and Center. Thanks for listening to Front and Center. You can subscribe on your favorite streaming platform and please be sure to leave us a review. To stay up to date, you can visit our website at centersquare.com to access our thought leadership, sign up for our mailing list, or contact our team. We look forward to hearing from you. The content of this podcast is informational only and represents the viewpoints of the presenters at the time of recording. It should not be regarded as a solicitation nor investment advice. All information presented is subject to change at any time based on new data, analysis, or market conditions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.